awesome. Hey, friends, welcome to church. I'm so glad to have you uh, in the house of God this morning. Hey, as many of you know, starting in the month uh, of January, Pursuit went to three services. We're going 9 a.m., we're going 10.30, we're going noon. And uh, I'm pleased to say each of them uh, are filling up in their own unique way. So help us be a bringer, be an inviter. We know we're running out of room in this service, but still got a little bit of room in the noon still. And uh, we're just expecting and continuing uh, to believe God for some incredible things here in the year uh, 2021. You hear me say this all the time, but just let me encourage you this morning. The king that we serve was not voted in. He cannot be voted out. His term is not up. He cannot be impeached. He cannot be overthrown. There's no check on his power. There's no environment in which Jesus isn't king. I think there's a lot of environments where people don't yet recognize that he's king, but there is truly no environment that exists on earth in which the lordship of Jesus does not reign supreme. In fact, Paul says it this way to the church in the city of Colossae, in the book of Colossians. He says this. He says, all things in heaven, all things on earth, and everything under the earth, Jesus reigns as preeminent, which means this. He is the firstborn of all creation. He is the lamb who was slain from the foundations of the world. There is no God like our God. There is no king like our king. There is no Lord like our Lord. He is the highest reigning supreme authority and power in all of the universe. There's no king like Jesus. And so for us, we put our faith in that reality, in the unshaken bedrock, that the lamb who was slain, in fact, has conquered death, hell, and the grave. This Jesus that we serve is the most beautiful figure in all of human history. This one that we serve captured our hearts, sits upon the throne of our lives, commands our destiny, forgives our past, empowers our present, secures our future. There is no other worldview, no other religion, no other philosophy that offers you the type of grace and mercy that is found only in the person of Jesus Christ. He is not one amongst many. He is one amongst one. For God so loved the world that he sent not many but one, his one and only begotten son, meaning this, the father bankrupted heaven, not to give you value, but because because he found you valuable. He said, man, these people made in my image are so valuable. Let me send Jesus. And let me uncover the value that they have. Let my blood be spent for them. To purchase them back. And that's why we celebrate the risen Jesus. I believe the gathering of God's people on earth is the most important gathering that we can ever be a part of. There's a lot of good things to show up at. There's a lot of fun things to do. But the most important gathering, I believe, you can back this up theologically, is the gathering of God's people. For when they gather, the business of heaven is conducted on earth. And so we pray for his kingdom to come. Watch his will to be done. Where? on earth as it's being done in heaven. You don't need to pray for heaven. You don't need to pray for his kingdom to come in heaven. It's already established. You don't need to pray for his will to be done in heaven. It's already established. Heaven doesn't need your prophetic words. Heaven doesn't need your revival services. Heaven doesn't need your offerings. You know where we need it? Here, on earth. And so when we clue into what's happening in heaven, we can appropriate it here on earth. God, your kingdom come, not mine, yours. God, your name be exalted, not mine, yours. God, your prerogative, your principle, your reality, manifested here on earth in such a way that what is happening above begins to happen below. And just because a church gathers doesn't necessarily mean they're conducting kingdom businesses. I think we got a lot of wineskins without wine. I think we got a lot of vessels without oil. We got a lot of churches that look like little more than community service organizations void of the Spirit of God. But when the Spirit of God shows up, it empowers a people to conduct the business 
richness of heaven. Friends, that's when neighborhoods are transformed. And that's what we're going after. Not another nice service. Not another nice sermon. If nice services could have saved the world, we'd done already be saved. And we ate. And so we say revival or bust. We're going to have a move of God in our generation. It's what we're going after. You haven't signed up for boring, dry, dead religion. You haven't signed up for another program. You haven't signed up for just another set of services to feel better about your own spirituality. You haven't signed up just to occupy a seat in some sort of denominational system and hope God comes back to rescue you out of your crappy life. You haven't signed up for that. You're on the right side of history. You're on the right side of eternity. You're on the winning side of faith. We're here to take over. We're here for his kingdom, his rulership, and his kingship. Come on, stand up on your feet and give God a great amen in the house of God, in the sanctuary of the living, the living stone, Jesus. This is the one that we serve. Come on, a great shout to the Lord. I'm turned up this morning. Sit down. Y'all got me shouting. I'm not supposed to shout. Y'all got me shouting. Bless God. I get excited about Jesus. People say, oh, you know, you, that's foolish. We shouldn't, you know, church should be more reverent. Church should... Shut up. Shut up. Let me tell you something. Y'all go go home, go watch a football game, act like idiots in your living room. All of a sudden come to church, you got a spirit of dignity on you. God isn't impressed by your dignity. David, as he dances before the Lord, says, I'll be even more undignified than this. If Jesus ain't worth getting your blood pumping, friend, it's not something wrong with me. It's something wrong with you. So we want to turn people up. We'll stir people up. Stir it in your innermost. That's what Jude says in chapter 1, verse 20. Build yourself up in the most holy faith. Stir yourself up. Dare yourself to believe God is as good as he says he is. That every word of scripture is true. What he's declared over your life will come to pass. It's high time that we just ought to believe what scripture simply says is true about our God, this church, and our future. And let me be just a little bold here in 2021. I think God is just as much at work in the renewal of the church as he is in the closure of others. It's not just about occupying space in the neighborhood. Fred, it's not just about getting a building and paying it off. It's not just about occupying and just, I, I'm just going here, I'm just going, I'm a bump on a log. I'm just going to occupy. Just bless God. I'm going to hold on to what is. We're not holding on to what is. We are fishers in the deep. Ships are safe in their harbor, but that's not what they're built for. They're built for the sea. Friend, you are built for adventure. You're built to take land. You're built to take territory. We are not just going to be pacified into simple spiritual observation while the world goes to hell around us. Come on, we need more than an opinion on the darkness of the world. We ought to be sons of light in this hour, redeeming the days for they are evil, announcing that Jesus has come. We don't have to work ourselves up. We're just simply announcing what has already been true. Jesus is here. And when Jesus is here, it changes everything. And I just think we got some wineskins that have forgotten that it's not by might nor by power, but by his spirit alone. 
And when the spirit leaves the church, friend, is better off dead. So let's give the church back to who, who it originally belonged to. Let's let the spirit of God do something in our midst. Come on, let the tribe of Judah, the lion who was roaring, march through these streets. Let's raise his banner above this church. Come on, let's declare for all who are going to listen. It's not religion as normal. It's a move of God. What we're leaning into is an unmitigated outpouring of his spirit without measure in our midst. We ought to believe that what God is about to do next will eclipse every moment all put together. That when God begins to breathe on the harvest field, what he releases is laborers in to the harvest to reap souls because he's worthy to receive the reward of his suffering. Come on, friends, it's the church you've signed up for. It's not just to have your ears tickled, not just to be motivated a little bit during worship, to be stirred up and challenged in your innermost, to not live below one ounce of the high call of God, which is in Christ Jesus. And I tell you what, man, we got to challenge ourselves to believe. It's not church as normal. It's not religion as normal. It's beholding the lamb who was slain and in doing so being transformed into his image and into his likeness. Now watch Matthew 11, starting in verse 1. i got to preach now. Matthew 11, <laughs> in verse 1. At Jesus, he's having a conversation with the disciples of a guy named John. Not the apostle John who writes the book of John, but John the Baptist. John the Baptist is a prophetic forerunner of Jesus. John's ministry is the fulfillment of what Malachi have prophesied. John is the one who comes in the spirit of Elijah to prepare the way of the Lord. John the Baptist is the cousin of Jesus. He's instrumental to the story. He is the last watch of the Old Testament prophets. Although his story appears in the New Testament, John is operating as the last of the old covenant prophets, bringing the story to close. Why? Because the bridegroom is here. Jesus is here. And John the Baptist's ministry looks like a man in the wilderness who is crying out with two central messages. Number one, repent for the kingdom of God is at hand. Number two, behold the Lamb of God. And those two messages ought to be married together in our world today. I think some places, all they ever talk about is repentance. And friend, without repentance, without having your eyes washed, you can't see him for who he truly is. But if you have and live such a sin-conscious life, then your world and your life will always revolve around your last shortcomings. Oh, look how bad I am, and look how terrible I am, and I messed up again. God already factored in all your stupidity. He already factored in all your sin. He already factored in all your shortcoming, and he still put his calling on your life. And if that messes with your theology, good, because it's not about you, and it's not about your ability to perform. You haven't been saved by your works. You've been saved by his works. You've been saved by his grace. He put it on your life. No, you didn't deserve it. Yeah, you messed up. Yeah, you royally screwed up. The good news of the gospel is it's not about you. It's about him. So John the Baptist has two central messages. Repent. Why? Because the kingdom's here. But then number two, behold, because the lamb is worthy. And if you marry repentance to beholding, it enters you into this lifelong transformational process by which you are made into his likeness and into his image. 
uh, John the Baptist prophetically prepares the way for Christ. Yet in Matthew 11, he finds himself in prison. Now, he's in prison because he rebuked the leader, the governmental leader of that land, Herod. Because Herod was having an affair with his sister-in-law. And John the Baptist found out about it and rebuked him publicly. And Herod got upset and locked him in prison and then later cut off his head. But in Matthew 11, John the Baptist finds himself in prison and finds himself having questions or second thoughts about who this Jesus is. And that's where the conversation starts for your context this morning. Matthew 11, starting in verse 1. Now it came to pass, when Jesus finished commanding his 12 disciples, that he departed from there to teach and preach in their cities. And when John had heard in prison about the works of Christ, watch, he sent two of his disciples, and they said to Jesus, Are you the coming one? Or do we look for another? John the Baptist had already declared Jesus to be the Messiah. John the Baptist had already baptized Jesus in the Jordan River. John the Baptist had already announced that Jesus had come to take away the sin of the world. And yet in Matthew 11, he sends his disciples to ask Jesus this question. Are you the one? And the reason why I think this story is so valuable is because I think it's a communication about the larger context of what it looks like to live a life of faith. You know that there can be Sundays where you are so convinced that Jesus is real. There are going to be moments where you're so convinced His power is at work in your life. You go to church on Sunday and you feel all turned up and you feel all excited. And this is the life I'm going to live and this is the way that I'm going to worship. And by the time that you're driving your kids home on Sunday afternoon after church, you're like, God, I can't do it with these kids. <laughs> I'm going to lose all my fruit of the Spirit, all my gifts of the Spirit. I'm going to burn this thing down. <laughs> what I was so convinced of half an hour ago feels like it's fleeting in the tyranny of the moment. And can I tell you, if we were to be honest this morning about our conversations we have internally about faith, we vacillate between I believe and help my unbelief sometimes in the same hour of the same day of the same week. Because that is what it looks like to be human. That's what it looks like to live a life of faith by which His light lights your every step. God, I'm in this. God, I believe you. But if I were to be honest, there are moments where my own doubts seem to cast a shadow on what I know to be true. And I think sometimes in church world, we always talk about the altruistic kind of value of following Christ. And we talk about how awesome it is and how great it is and all of the giants we've conquered, all of the land that we've taken and all of the awesome things. And we don't validate that people's journey doesn't look like win, 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 win. It looks like faith, doubt, valley, mountain, green pasture, still waters. It looks like a normal life that you and I experience. And so God forbid I get up here this morning and project upon you something that's not even a reality in Scripture. In order to feel good about my faith, I can never have a doubt 
No, friend, in order to survive and thrive in a life of following Jesus, you can have as many doubts as you want, but at the end of the day, you got to make a decision to park them at his feet. It's not about living a doubtless life. It's not about never having a question. It's not about never having a concern. It's not about never going through what they call the dark night of the soul. What it means is at the end of the day, even when I don't understand, I'm choosing Jesus. And I'm not going to allow my obedience to him to stop at the level of my understanding. You know, we all want God to do something more than we understand. Except when he does something that we don't understand. And then all of a sudden we get all upset and want to deconstruct what we have understood. And can I tell you, friend, if you want to serve a God that is bigger than what you understand, then you've got to recognize that there are some times in life where his thoughts are not yours. His mind is not yours. His ways are high above. And sometimes he's working things throughout generations, throughout timelines that you could not even imagine. And he is working them together for your good. But the next time you're tempted to give up on faith because of something you don't understand, remember, we don't worship a God made in our own image. We worship a God framed in by this book. And even scripture says not even all the books of the world could contain the wonderful works of who Christ is. But see, in the West, because we worship our own understanding, we worship our own enlightenment. See, doesn't scripture say lean not on your own understanding, but in all your ways acknowledge him? The more I grow in faith, the less I understand about the ways in which God works. But the more that I'm convinced he's real. There's not a formula for this because God isn't interested in formulas because we use formulas as shortcuts to intimacy. If I can just read a chapter or sing a song or raise my hands at this part on this song, I can curry God's favor. No, friend, he's interested in the intimacy of your life. (laughs) And he's doing something that you can't understand. And sometimes it takes you through the valley of Baca, the valley of weeping, until you get to rejoicing. Sometimes it takes you through temporary delays until you see his fullness in the next season. Sometimes it looks like a setback, but it's a setup for something else. Sometimes it looks like sickness to get to health. Sometimes it looks like trials to get to testimony. Sometimes it looks like darkness to get to light. But the next time that you're tempted to give up on this God, just be thankful that you worship a God who doesn't fit within the confines of what you understand. Now watch what's happening here. Matthew 11. They ask, are you the one? It reminds me of a conversation Jesus has in Mark chapter 9. Now Mark 9, Jesus is coming down from the Mount of Transfiguration. And it's a mountaintop that Jesus goes to by which the glory of God descends in such a way that Jesus is transformed. And appears with him on this mountaintop, Elijah representing the prophets, and Moses representing the law, and Jesus representing the mediator. It's this glorious moment. It's like the highlight, the last night of the conference, the last night of youth camp, the best Sunday morning you've ever been, times a million, with Peter, James, and John. They're amazed. Peter is so confounded by what he sees, he says to Jesus, let's build a temple right here. And well, let's just camp here the rest of our lives. But Jesus understands that what you receive on the mountain is for you to use in the valley. So Jesus has this experience with glory on the Mount of Transfiguration, comes down the mountain and finds his disciples in an argument. And you know what they're arguing with? A spirit. And you know what you can't do? Argue with a spirit. 
Because the Spirit doesn't care about the level of your argument. It only senses the level of your authority. They're trying to argue with a spirit. They're trying to cast it out. A dad is crying. He's weeping. He's upset because his boy is severely demonized. The Bible says that he has a, a demon that every time there's a fire, he tries to throw himself in the fire. It's a spirit of death. It's a spirit of suicide. It's a spirit of confusion. Similar to the spirits we have in our region today. And Jesus come down the mountain. His disciples are arguing with the spirit. He goes, what's going on? They say, Jesus, we tried to cast this out. We can't. And Jesus says, this kind only comes out by prayer and by fasting. And then Jesus has a conversation with the man's father. And I want to draw your attention to the man's father. Jesus said to him, if you can believe, all things are possible to him who believes. Immediately, the father of the child cried out and said with tears, Lord, I believe, but help my unbelief. And when Jesus saw that the people came running together, he rebuked the unclean spirit, saying to it, deaf and dumb spirit, I command you, come out of him and enter him no more. I love the authenticity and vulnerability of the Father in Mark 9. God, I believe. I believe what you said to be true about my life. I believe breakthrough is coming. I believe help is coming. I believe you're going to do something for my kid. I believe you're going to do something for my family. I believe you're going to do something for my resource. God, I'm faithful. I'm showing up every week. But if I could be honest for a moment, I believe, but help my unbelief. And Jesus doesn't launch into a theological discourse rebuking the man for his unbelief. Well, if you were really a superstar Christian, you would never have a season of doubt. Well, just believe. That's what I do. I just always believe. Do you know that even Jesus dealt with unbelief? You don't believe me? Read the Garden of Gethsemane story where he says, Father, not my will, but your will be done. The Garden of Gethsemane is where his will went to be subjected to the Father's will. Even Jesus struggled to such a degree that the Bible says great drops of blood came from his forehead. And I'm here to tell you, your struggle with unbelief isn't a sin as long as it's subjected to the Father's will. God, I don't understand. God, if I were to be honest, I don't even really believe. But Father, help my unbelief. I love it. I love it. Because this is us. God, I believe everything you said. God, I believe everything we've sung. I believe everything we've prophesied. I believe you at your word. I don't understand it all. It doesn't always make sense. It doesn't mean life is easy. But God, I believe. But God, if I could be honest in this moment without feeling condemned by, by, by people who, who want to put the yoke of religion on my shoulders. God, if I could just be honest for a moment. If I could just be vulnerable before you. If I could just quit lying to myself and lying to people around them. Sometimes I struggle with unbelief and it's like the father holds you even closer and he says it's okay because if you just have a mustard seed of faith watch a mountain that I can move in your life and I know you've got unbelief and I know that if we were to be honest you're going to wrestle with that thing the rest of your life but if we can learn to park our questions and our concerns and our unbelief and our turmoil at the feet of Jesus it doesn't always guarantee that we get an answer but it does guarantee that we keep our eyes on him 
I wish I could stand up here as some sort of great philosopher and wax eloquently and answer all of the existential questions of your life. Like, why do bad things happen to good people? And what about childhood sickness? And if God really cared, why are there people who are poor? And friend, I don't have all of the answers for you this morning. But if we could provide an answer to all of life's questions, then we would be humanists, not Christians. My goal is not to answer all of your questions, but instead to cause us as a community to gaze on the one who holds all of the answers. And I think sometimes in life we think, man, when I get to heaven, I'm going to ask all these things. And God, what happened to my dad? What happened to my mom? And I prayed this and it never came true. And somebody said this and I thought it was going to happen and it never did. When I get to heaven, I'm going to unroll my scroll and ask him all these questions. And friend, I think when you get to heaven, you're going to be so overwhelmed by the king who sits on the throne. The one whose head is wrapped in rainbows. The one who sits on a golden throne that from it throws the river of life. The four living creatures with eyes and wings all around crying out, Holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come. In your ear on the left, you'll see 10,000 by 10,000 angels declaring. On your right, you'll see the 12 apostles worshiping. In front of you, you'll see the blood of all of the saints who've given their lives for the gospel Christ out for justice I think you'll get to heaven and be so overwhelmed by the lamb who was slain that your questions will simply be consumed in his presence and that's why my commitment to build a presence driven church because there's only so far that intellectualism can take you there's only so far that the answers from man can take you there's only so much that we can provide in our own power and in our own wisdom friends you need the wisdom of God and his presence in your life to so envelop your existence that whether or not I ever get my answer I have found my home I found my home in Jesus I found my home in Jesus when I don't understand, I choose Jesus. Well, what about this? Oh, I've got an answer for you. Sorry if I've been propped up in your own mind as the one who's got all the answers. I've got more questions today than I've ever had. But I'm more convinced of this one central reality. There is a Jesus who lives inside of me who is worthy of praise and adoration. I love it, Mark 9. Jesus, he rebukes the deaf and the dumb spirit. It's a spirit that causes you to not be able to hear and a spirit that causes you to not be able to speak. And Jesus, in this moment, rebukes what is deaf and what is dumb. And in doing so, transformation begins to happen in a family. You know, what's, you know why it's so important for your family to be built upon the foundation of Jesus is Lord and church is essential? Because I believe what it does in your life is communicate the ethic of Christ's freedom by which he sets us into liberty. By which it causes the spirit that blocks our ability to hear and blocks our ability to speak. It breaks its authority in our lives. <laughs> And it's so valuable to be able to hear the words of God because when you hear them, you can speak them. And see, we got territorial, demonic entities that would love to stop up the ear of the church. 
to stop up the voice of the church. Remember, that's why the cry of revelation is, he who has an ear, let him hear. I think even what Jesus is communicating to the seven churches in the book of Revelation is that spirit that has locked up your ability to hear, it comes off of you now. You might be here today and feel like, man, I've been awash in spiritual confusion. I've made agreements with all sorts of syncretism and false religions and false idols in my own life. I believe lies like God's not going to speak to me or God's not interested in having a personal relationship with me. And friend, I'm telling you today, what Jesus said in Mark 9, the Spirit of God declares over you, deaf and dumb spirit come off of you and enter you no more. And all of a sudden, when you begin to get freedom in your life, it begins a work of transformation in your family. Do you think the family of the man in Mark 9 was severely impacted by the fact that this boy would no longer throw himself into the fire with a spirit of suicide? Can I tell you the spirit of suicide and the spirit of religion are the same spirit? They're both trying to kill what God loves. And so for us, we don't allow that suicidal spirit to impact us individually or organizationally. Why? Because our eyes are kept on Jesus. Friend, following Jesus is not a problem-free life. It's not a pain-free life. It's a commitment to choose Him in every season of life. Whether Peter is sinking in the waves, or Elijah is complaining in the cave, or Moses is arguing in the wilderness, it seems like one minute nothing can shake your faith, and the next minute you are filled with doubt. But you need to know this morning, Jesus is Lord in both places of your life. <laughs> I take solace in the story of Job. He's lost everything. His friends tell him, curse God and die. He's got a lot of questions that, frankly, God doesn't seem interested in answering. But this is his resolve. Job said, naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked I will depart. But the Lord gave, and the Lord has taken. And yet, may the name of the Lord be praised. For I know that my Redeemer lives, and that in the end, He will stand on the earth. And friend, my question for you today is, where are those types of people? I don't always understand what I deal with or the hurts that I experience, but I know that in the midst of it, my Redeemer lives. And what do I do when questions rise to the surface of my circumstance? I take them to the feet of Jesus because He is still the way, He is still the truth, He is still the life. And still today, no man comes to the Father except by Him. Do you know that Jesus doesn't always respond? the way that I want him to, but he always responds. You pray for patience and God sends you a difficult person to build that muscle. <laughs> you pray for resource, God sends you an opportunity to work. Just be careful. Don't pray for all your problems to disappear because you might cease to exist. <laughs> Look, God always responds. He don't always respond the way I want him to respond. But friend, he always responds. And what I love about the model of Jesus in the New Testament is the way in which he responds, especially to the religious leaders. They always ask him a question. Instead of answering the question, he speaks to the deeper issue. You ever find that in your dialogue with the Lord? God, why? And he's like, no, you asked the wrong question. I'll answer you, but you asked the wrong question. Hey, let me help you reflect on the broader narrative that's at play. You know, I think it's so easy, even for, 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 for me uh, and, 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 and for us, we get so self-centered and so focused on our individual moments of pain, our individual moments of trial or trauma. 
And instead of taking stock in the life of Christ, we feel like, man, he must have singled me out for some sort of divine judgment or punishment or pain. And yet when you read the stories of Scripture and even the life of Jesus, you see that He walks through the wilderness. He experiences betrayal. He's in the Garden of Gethsemane. He experiences rejection from His family. His disciples leave Him. His friends desert Him. And He says, if the world hated me, they're going to hate you too. And maybe, just maybe, if we took more solace in the story of Christ, it would help give us some context for the things that we experience in our life. Instead of saying, woe is me, poor me, self-pity, we say, God, I know you're at work, even in the uncomfortable moments of my life. Now, verse 25, at that time, Jesus answered. He said, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and prudent and have revealed them to babes. Even so, Father, for so it seemed good in your sight, all things have been delivered to me by my Father, and no one knows the Son except the Father, nor does anyone know the Father except the Son, and the one to whom the Son will reveal to him. Come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and I am lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy, and my burden is light. Wow. Jesus is the most profound figure in all of human history. His statements cut to the very heart, the very core of the human condition. And Jesus knows exactly what the disciples of John are carrying. And the weight that John the Baptist carries himself. God, I've given up everything to follow you. Are you sure this is the way? And Jesus invites the questions. He invites the concerns. He invites the doubts. He invites the shortcomings. He says, put them at my feet. For my yoke is easy. My burden is light. I got a yoke with me on, on, on stage, and, and, and this ought to be about 100, 150 years old. Now, if you're from Snohomish, you're from a farming family, you, you might be more familiar with this, but if you're raised in the city, you got no idea. <laughs> and this was a yoke for oxen. And the oxen, they put their necks under these yokes. <laughs> and the farmer would attach a rope to this ring, and it would circle back through a plow. And he could drive the oxen in any direction that he wished. And Jesus, speaking to a primarily agricultural society, they know exactly what a yoke is like. Jesus is speaking to these folks. And I don't know if Jesus gestures over to the field next to him or points to a, a yoke that a, a farmer may have sitting next to him, but... I imagine Jesus picking up a yoke. He's saying to the disciples of John, he's saying to his own disciples who've given up everything to follow him. He's even saying to the religious leaders who have come to mock him for healing on the Sabbath. And Jesus is saying to these crowds, my yoke is easy. 
and my burden is light. But inversely, your yoke is heavy and your burden is crushing. For some of you this morning, you've carried the yoke of dysfunction. You've carried the yoke of toxic family systems. You've carried the yoke of pain or abuse or regret or addiction. And and it's weighing you down on your neck. And you're here like the father in Mark 9 crying out, God, I believe. But help my unbelief. And this Jesus stands in the center of life's most confounding circumstances and says, come to me. Come to me, all who are heavy burdened. Come to me, all who struggle with doubt and sin and regret and divorce and abuse and pain. Come to me and I will give you rest. And friend, this is why church is so important in your life. This is why Jesus must remain central to your existence. Because there is no other system. There is no other religion. There is no other philosophy that offers you rest from the weary journey you're on. And some of you have felt anchored down by the mistakes you've made or the secret questions you have, or the doubts that you've expressed. And friend, I can't give you an answer today, but I can tell you this, there is a Jesus who offers us rest. And this Jesus is worthy of all praise and all adoration, both now and forever. Come on, would you stand with me as we close this morning?